That's one small step for brands. One giant leap for brand kind. You're listening to Food Chain, presented by Perfy. A big thank you to this episode's sponsor, Triple Whale. Triple Whale's powerful analytics platform clarifies your ad performance across channels, keeping you instantly in the know. Hit the link in the show notes and use promo code Perfy for 15% off today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Food Chain. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Alec Jaffe from Alex Ice Cream with us. Super excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. Alec, before we jump in, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah. So why, starting Alex Ice Cream, I think, is a convergence of two big formative life experiences of mine from growing up. I am a self-taught, lifelong ice cream maker, taught myself how to make ice cream back in elementary school for a class project, and also grew up around family members very involved in sustainable agriculture and improving our food systems. And you can see those two things leading directly to starting a more sustainable, better tasting ice cream company. And yeah, it's the two things that led me here. But prior to this, I was I was an athlete in college and worked in tech and some sports entertainment stuff and decided to make the leap into food. Amazing. Yeah, I've been excited about this episode because I'm a UCLA Bruin. You're a USC Trojan, but I get along. My girlfriend's a USC Trojan, so we're fair there. Okay, good. So we can keep recording. Yeah, 100%. Tell me more about how playing U1 football, all of the requirements, waking up early, full course loads, practice, lifting, like dedication to your nutritional program. How has all of that helped you become a founder of a food beverage company? I think it's really helped a lot. And I was what's called a preferred walk-on. So I was recruited and given a spot on the team, but I kind of still had to earn my way and I wasn't given a scholarship. You're definitely the underdog in that scenario. And as a CPG food and bev startup founder, especially going into a category like ice cream, where you have these monster incumbent brands, you're definitely the underdog. For me, it helps in a variety of ways. One, just having the confidence and the willingness to take on a challenge like that and not being afraid of competition and really embracing competition to also there's something that the company value that we have which is our next play mentality and it's just in startups like in sports like in life you're going to get hit with challenges and adversity on the field a play isn't going to go your way you're going to throw an interception or drop the ball or whatever it may be but the game doesn't end in that instant like right after that play there's still a next play and so it's this whole mentality of what's the next play What's our next move? And I think having just that ability to maintain a level set of emotions is really helpful in the insane roller coaster of launching a startup. I love it. I've had so many founders with finance backgrounds, so many founders co-founding businesses with their significant others. I believe you're the first college athlete on the podcast. I've been waiting for this day because there's, I think there's just something about sports where like playing time just isn't guaranteed in my opinion and i think in reality you don't just there's plenty of scholared players that are not playing or and i love that you were for walk on you had to earn your right to even be on the roster it's it shows a true you know testament to who you are but i feel in cpg right now i think there's like some parallels where people start a company and they automatically assume they're going to get playing time and in actuality we've got to put in the work when you started your 
ice cream company, you had to put in the work to get in front of buyers, show your points of difference, why you're better than the competition. To your point, you had to compete. I think that there's a weird thing going on right now in CPG where people just assume that they're going to be the superstar once they put on the jersey. Do you see that or do you not? Uh, yeah. I don't want to speak for how other people and how they're approaching it. And also I tend to just focus on us and what mm -hmm. we're doing. And so I think compared to a lot of other CPG folks, I'm just so just focus on what's happening inside the building, which is again, another way to think about something, <laughs> but what are we doing? And of course, looking at our competition and being aware of the category of keeping up with trends and everything like that. But I think to your point, yeah, there, there is this like expectation that Oh, I'm just going to create this product and everyone's going to buy it and everyone's going to love it. And we're going to get on into every retailer and our velocities are going to be amazing. And it's all going to work out great. But you're going to have some areas where it's not going to work out well. If we're struggling in a certain place or whatever, it still it really wears on me. And it's not something that I enjoy, but I was thinking about this the other day where, so I played running back and playing running back, you have to be willing to just get hit all the time. You're constantly getting hit. People are trying to knock the ball out and tackle you. And that's sort of running a startup in a way where you're just constantly getting hit from all sides. Every time you're trying to do something, there's someone trying to take you out of, there's some obstacle that pops up and just being able to, and being willing to constantly take those hits and keep moving forward. I think that just mentality instilled in me from sports is what allows me to keep going and i just think about for myself i'm going to be willing to take that hit and get up and keep going more than the next person and so that's a mentality that i have as a founder because it's really hard and you need that need something that inspires you or drives you to keep going and so yeah that's how i look at it yeah i think playing sports definitely helps I apologize to my team members for constantly overusing sports metaphors, but I use them because I think that they're relevant and applicable. Yeah, they are. I think they really are. What are some other kind of sports terminologies you use to keep the team fired up? Totally. Our first, so team values is a big thing, especially like playing in college football. You've got a hundred guys, over a hundred guys on the team. Everyone's super competitive. Everyone's playing at a high level or was the best person on their high school team so really making coaches really want to set these team values and so that's something that i wanted to bring into our team at alex and our first value is protect the team and it's a super common value through in football and basically what it means is at least my interpretation of it is that everything we do the number one thing to think about is protecting the team, protecting your buddy, protecting the people that are inside this building in this team that you're working with. And nothing matters more than that. And that kind of goes to a way to just how to think about our decision. We have our own manufacturing facility, so we make our own products. And there's so many times in manufacturing where you could potentially cut a corner, you could whatever, like it's good enough, we'll ship it out. And for us, that's not the case. Like we hold ourselves to a very high standard because if we ship out that product that isn't fully up to our standard, then that hurts the marketing and sales team's ability to actually sell the product and hit their numbers because people aren't wanting to buy a product that's not as good. And then it hurts their ability to do their job and 
it hurt it hurts the kpi that we're setting for a manufacturing team everything you're doing you just having that baseline of is this protecting your team or is this hurting your team that's one that i think is really like a very direct pull from my football background another one is the standard which just means that like we have a standard for ourselves and it's there's no wavering on what that standard is so they're very like quote-unquote football guy values but i think they really drive at what we're trying to do here those are great ones when you hire summer interns do you call them walk-ons no <laughs> no we <laughs> yeah red shooting. We, do, we don't make them do tackling drills either awesome yeah awesome let's dive deeper into your product i think you have some really fascinating flavors but one thing that's really cool about your ice cream specifically is that you're using a2 dairy can you tell me more about that yeah so a2 dairy is basically a more more digestible form of dairy. So A2 is a milk protein found in all mammals' milk, so humans, cows, goats, sheep. And then a long time ago, cows had this genetic mutation where they started producing a variant of that A2 protein, which is called an A1 protein. So now if you look at modern day, you have some cows who have genetics that are producing A2 dairy, but most cows, especially in conventionally farmed dairy in the U.S., has this A1 protein. And this A1 protein has a different structure and digests differently in your body. And so a lot of people who have dairy sensitivities actually find that they're able to consume A2 dairy products totally fine and have no discomfort. There is still lactose in the milk, and that's a common misconception that people think A2 dairy doesn't have lactose. It still does have lactose. So if you're truly sensitive or allergic to lactose, you may have issues with A2. But what we found is a lot of people, countless people who come up to us at demos or events and or just write in the, an email to our customer service email saying that they are never able to eat ice cream because it always makes them feel full, but they are able to eat our ice cream and feel totally fine and feel amazing. And so that that's something that's really cool and I, we're really proud of is that we're able to allow people to have that dairy indulgent ice cream experience and still feel great afterwards beautiful i think it's so interesting and does that have anything to do with how the cows are raised because i saw something not too long ago with a very large dairy company owned by one of the biggest companies in the world and there were some really weird things going on that farm how does like is that part of what makes it a2 as well no so the a2 is purely based on the cow's genetics. So you can have an A2 cow living in the worst industrial feedlot system, or you can have an A2 cow on the best regenerative grazing farm. So it's all just based on the cow's genetics. Got it. Amazing. Amazing. Now, how'd you come up with your fun flavors? I'm looking at honey, blueberry, lavender right now. I think that the honeycomb on the front of pack looks super delicious. It's a great job with the branding. Like, How did you say, hey, we're making this hype? Yeah, so we when we create our flavors, we really want to create what we call these elevated classes. And so we're taking flavors that you have had before or have heard about or something that feels familiar and just putting our own unique twist on it. So with honey, blueberry, lavender, we had seen honey lavender start to pop up as a more common flavor. And so we just wanted to put our own unique twist on it and... I think you see that with a lot of our flavors where I want someone to see our ice cream and be like, oh, that instantly just feel that feeling, oh, that sounds delicious. I want to try it. And so I think you get that when you just alter some 
something just enough to make it feel unique and new. Yeah, I think it's so cool. I've never really seen, or maybe I can't just can't recall. You use a really interesting blend of illustrations, fun illustrations, with the actual food images, like photo- like photography or rendered images, and I think it really works out for you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we that was a fun part of the branding process and just thinking through that. And we felt like using real food photography on the front of a package just wasn't happening as much anymore. And partly for good reason, because it's really expensive to do really good photography. But we we just felt like it delivered these great flavor cues. If we're investing so much in creating a really tasty product, let's really communicate that on pack and just how the photography complements the illustration. We just felt like it was a really fun dynamic. Yeah, it really works out. I think it's so cool. Man, these flavors look great. Let's talk about something that's, I find it very rare. I I used to work for a frozen food company that had a D2C channel. It looks like Mm -hmm. you do as well. Is it because that you're vertically integrated or you have your own manufacturing facility that you're able to do this? Talk to me more about that. Yeah, the D2C thing was, it was really a COVID adoption that we did. So we moved into our factory in January of 2020, which was very interesting timing. World shuts down a couple months later with the initial COVID outbreak. And we're just figuring out what we want to do. Like, how do we want to get the product out there? And everyone was starting to move to e-com and direct-to-consumer. And so we wanted to give it a try, see how it worked. And it also enables us for shipping samples, shipping samples alone is really difficult when you're shipping ice cream. And so it also enables us to be more effective with shipping those types of things. But I would say the bulk of our business is going through grocery stores and wholesale. Yeah, I think it's so fun when people can figure out the unlock for frozen delivery. I don't know if anybody listening knows, but shipping frozen items that need to remain frozen, pretty wild. Like you're probably using like dry ice or frozen ice packs on top of that. What was that? Yeah, dry ice. So we take this compostable insulated liner. So we don't use styrofoam. Styrofoam is not great (laughs) for the environment. So we don't use styrofoam and then we use dry ice. And the challenging thing with with shipping ice cream is that it needs to arrive in the exact amount of time we plan for it for shipping. So if we pack enough dry ice for two days shipping and then for whatever reason it gets to by a day and so it arrives in three days the dry ice is going to dissolve by then and the ice cream is going to melt it's not like when you're shipping let's say steaks and they can remain frozen for a certain amount of time even if the ice melts so that's a challenging thing because once ice cream melts you can't refreeze it it'll just be super icy and, and gross then the other challenge is dry ice dissolves it doesn't melt. So, you know, if it's a bunch of ice packs and they're all melted, you can see what happened. But if the dry ice just dissolves and disappears, people get a box of melted ice cream with no dry ice. They're like, did you just forget to pack the dry ice in here? No, we didn't forget. There are definitely a lot of challenges with shipping ice cream. Yeah, so gnarly. And are you leveraging like manufacturers, coupons and things like that to support sampling in store? Yeah. So we'll use coupons to support in store along with demos. Demos are so huge for us to be able to do. And that's, it's something that we haven't really been able to do until now because the stores weren't allowing demos for a long time. And just being able to tell people about our A2 attributes, our regenerative certifications, like pairing those things on top of a great ice cream just gets people so excited about the product, but it's hard to communicate all that stuff um, without being able to have that conversation with people. For sure. One thing I used to do 
at a frozen food company before I started my agency and way before I started Perfy was I had three different tiers of manufacturer's coupons that we would send in envelopes, a dollar off, buy one, get one, and one free one. And we would use those. So let's say you want to work with influencers shipping six to nine pints of ice cream. It's going to run you up there. And rather than do that, we would send them these coupons. We had to make sure that they looked cool though, looked like yep. whatever the product was, because it, it's still some sort of an unboxing experience and you want it to be memorable. So maybe a branded envelope, handwritten note, a few coupons. So that way, when they go pick it up and redeem it for free at the store, not only are you getting a little bit of movement off the shelf, but you're fulfilling the need of working with influencers. And that worked like an absolute charm for me back in the day. Oh, nice. I like that. I might have to, I might have to borrow that idea from you. Oh, please do. That's why I shared. And if you want to hit me up offline, I'll give you more details. Or if anyone listening wants more information, you reach out to either one of us, but it'll work. So if you want to work with influencers, let's say you have a Publix launch or a regional or a national. My campaign looked like this. It was for Kroger in 2017, I think. It was a Kroger, I think, nationwide. And we sent hundreds and hundreds of influencers, different tiers of manufacturers, coupons. We didn't have handwritten notes at the time. And then we would, I created a spreadsheet. And when they would go and redeem, then your influencer funnel starts. It's as though you just shipped it and landed. Once they redeem, then you start working on how do we post about it? Do you want to do a giveaway? What's it going to cost, if anything? And we ended up being the number one, I think number one, two, and four products in that set in the frozen section at those Kroger banks. Wow, that's awesome. There's like four or five weeks that it took that. But yeah, feel free to use it, borrow it. There's some really good companies out there, like Isle does it digitally now. So Mandelik and Rose and Inmar are usually the the clearinghouses or manufacturing coupon people. But Isle does a really good job of being able to do the same thing. But now you can keep their phone numbers and emails rather than really not knowing who's getting those. Totally. Yeah. And what's great about that too is one of the challenges of doing influencer campaigns with our product is the person needs to be home the day that it arrives. They can't be gone for the day or two and come back and it'll be there. Yeah. That's a fun Unsolved. There you go. That one's going to work for you. I promise. Love it. Let's talk more about regenerative ingredients. You use yeah. regenerative ingredients in your product. Tell me more about that and why it's so important. Yeah. So we use both regenerative, organic dairy and cane sugar in all of our products. Regenerative farming is a really important concept and movement. And I look at it as the next wave or evolution of sustainability and a way of farming that goes beyond organic. I think a good way to approach it is if we start by defining organic or looking at what organic is as the current way of identifying sustainable foods. But organic farming is really just, there's a variety of things that go into it, but the heart of it is let's stop doing bad things to the planet when we do, when we farm and let's stop spraying really harmful chemicals on our food. Regenerative farming takes that and uses a variety of really ancient and indigenous practices and creates this farming system that aims to work with nature and almost mimic nature. And it creates these really powerful environmental outcomes. One of them being pulling carbon out of the air and storing it in soil. And so you have these regenerative farms, even farms with animals on them that are able to offset all of their emissions and potentially even offset more carbon and they're able to offset more of their emissions than they put out. So they're able to pull more carbon from the air than they emit from their operations and store it in the soil. There's also other stuff like creating 
more water retaining and nutrient dense soil, which creates more nutrient dense foods, creating more biodiversity. Our cane sugar farm that we source our sugar from, they have like hundreds of different animal species and endangered species living on their agricultural land in Brazil, which is not something you hear about in typical industrial agriculture. And then it also creates better lives for the animals and the farmers in these systems. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot is the quality of life for the farmers in our food and the industrial system and the way current way of doing things really creates a tough life for farmers where they get into a lot of debt and have these really difficult contracts and things like that and moving to a regenerative system really creates a much better quality of life for the farmer as well which is super yeah 100 percent. i've never even heard that brought up it's like that one mcdonald's tweet from a while ago that just went off as they said everyone always asks about the social media manager but never asks how the social media manager is or something like that something along those lines <laughs> exactly and, and yeah that, everyone felt that and i feel like we we've, we've got to show a little more love to the animals and the farmers yeah totally and so we are really proud of our participation in this regenerative movement and we're one of the very few products that actually have multiple regenerative ingredients being used. And so we're looking to just shout that message from the rooftops about regenerative agriculture and why more brands need to be transitioning over to regenerative supply chains, why people should be going into stores looking for regenerative products. It's really important and can really make a big impact on this climate change effort. An easy way to think about it is moving to organic is playing defense against climate change and stopping bad things, us doing bad things, whereas regenerative agriculture is playing offense and we're actually looking to start actively repairing our planet. How do people get involved on special teams, Mr. Joking? That's a great analogy. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Go buy go buy a print of Alex ice cream at the store. Oh, there it is. I'm going to be a gunner and run it straight, run straight to the store right now. Perfect. This is super cool. So when you first got going, were you finding that conversations with buyers or folks in retail were more about education on this, or did they already know that regenerative ingredients and sustainable agriculture was a thing? It's been really interesting seeing the development of these two trends, regenerative and aid two, over the past year. We started trying to sell in our regenerative A2 ice cream in the fall of 2021. So we launched the product last April, so April 2022. And when we were selling it in, oh, buyers knew about it. They knew about regenerative or they knew about A2, but they usually typically knew about one of the trends, maybe not both. So there was a ton of education going on and we were having to really convince people why this mattered, that their customers and shoppers are going to care about it. It was a lot of education. Now, fast forward to this year, and it's like everybody knows about regenerative. Everybody knows about A2, and everybody's looking for these products. And retailers are making bigger pushes and commitments to regenerative. You're seeing more A2 products pop up on shelf. So it's been really nice to have that first wave happen where people are learning about this and starting to get an understanding of why it matters to now where it seems like at least on the, the behind the scenes side of things where it's brands and buyers talking to each other, everyone is on the same page and really understands the importance of both of these things. Really cool to see that kind of evolve 
so quickly. So I want to dive deeper into something I think is really cool. And actually, somebody reached out to me two weeks ago about owning your manufacturing versus contract manufacturing. Were you originally contract manufacturing and then brought it under one umbrella, or did you just start out under one umbrella? We started out from the beginning with our own facility. Our path is not was not typical, and there's a lot of luck involved. So we found this ice cream facility. It was a shutdown facility. Company was going out of business, and they were looking to sell their equipment and everything. And no one had jumped on it, and it was about to go to auction. And we found out about it, and it was a pretty big risk to take, but. The opportunity just presented itself and looking at it now, I'm so happy that we took this risk, but there was a lot of really challenging situations that came with taking that risk, but we just decided why not? Let's go for it. And it's such an awesome opportunity to be able to find something like this and it doesn't pop up often where it was, the equipment was already in place. So we didn't have to build out much of anything. It was all there. A lot of repairs and things breaking down because it had been, been used a lot from the previous owner. And there's a lot of that, but we just went for it. Amazing. When I was at Quest, we had a production facility in the city of industry. And then I feel like the brands that do in-house manufacturing do a really good job at it. And then once there's some sort of acquisition or something, I feel like the acquirers usually pull out of that. And I, I wonder why. I wonder why, because that's what happened at Quest. Interesting. I'm sure there's a, a ton of reasons why. I think it does manufacturing your own products. I think one just creates a creates a different mentality in throughout the business and throughout the team where we're just really because we're investing so much in our facility and so much of what we do goes towards manufacturing. It really forces us to be considerate about how we spend our money and how we do things. And then also just really builds a lot of pride in the team of we're actually out here making something <laughs> making something that people really love and there's a lot of pride in that yeah it's really really cool i think you know, we work with a brand on my agency side that has their own facility and it's you can be a lot more nimble in my opinion yeah i think there's pros and cons it probably can get expensive and i think the one of the biggest pros is you aren't beholden to line times at a co-manufacturer or errors from so many brands being run through or waiting for equipment to be cleaned or certifications or so many different things I think can go wrong. I personally use a co-manufacturer for Perfy and there's days where I wake up and I feel like we're doing Oklahoma drills and I'm just holding yeah. the ball and getting murdered every day. Yeah. I mean, it's, I've been having this conversation a lot with people. It seems like more and more people are getting more interested in doing the manufacturing themselves or just having the same, there's, there's good and bad with both things. Everything has its pluses and minuses, but with us being able to exactly, like you said, be nimble and scale production quickly is I think such a huge benefit to owning your own facility. So we just launched in Sprouts and the turnaround time from when you find out that you're launching to when you need to be on shelf is really quick. And then we have some other launches happening pretty soon as well and we're just rapidly growing in, in our distribution and how much product we need to make we needed to do that with a co-packer i think it would have been really hard especially line time is really hard to come by and yeah. so being able to just flip the switch and say okay it's time to start making more ice cream 
and being able to do it and having that control over our destiny was really critical through this stage. And then, of course, being able to do quality control, do sensory tests the day of or the day after a production run, not waiting for it to ship from the co-packer and arrive at our facility. There's just so many little things that that make me really happy. We took this jump. I think the biggest thing is actually being able to make the product that we make yeah. and sourcing our dairy directly from a farm. Just with, you get it when you get into the intricacies of dairy manufacturing. If we were co-packing, it would have been, especially as a small new brand, I don't think we would have been able to make the product that we currently make. And that was really the reason why we felt like it was the right move beyond the Egypt things that makes that show that I guess the strategic value that owning your own manufacturing has as you scale. The biggest reason was we wanted to source the best possible dairy and the best possible ingredients. And we ran into a lot of issues doing that, talking to co-packers about how we could do that and how having this facility really fall into our laps as an opportunity allowed us to truly do what we wanted to do. And so that was the big reason why we did it. Does it allow you to be quicker when running R&D? Do you guys handle that at the facility where you someone has an idea and you're like, let's see if it works or what does that look like? Oh yeah, totally. I think the knowledge and expertise of just making the product allows us to do R&D really quickly. And so we have a batch freezer in the facility. We can whip up some benchtop tests, see how it goes. We want to run an R&D production and run. We can just set aside one of our flavoring tanks and just do a, a small like 200 gallon, see how it processes on everything. And you know, just having that flexibility is really nice and allows us to be much quicker with our R&D process. What a dream. Like I, I know that it, no, no matter which direction a brand or founder takes their company, there's going to be pros and cons, but just those alone seems like Seems so nice. <laughs> it just seems so yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Those are the nice things. And it's funny, like you talk to some, sometimes you may not even know how your product is made if you're co-packing it. So just being able to have that knowledge and it forced us to learn a lot for pretty more than we knew going into this about food manufacturing and ice cream science and all that sort of stuff. You know, there's so many challenges along the way too, whereas like when a piece of equipment breaks or shuts down or needs yeah. to be repaired, you got to take care of that, scheduling people to work and finding people to work and building up a manufacturing team and all the just people management that comes with that. And for us, we took this big risk and this big investment and we were really under capacity. And so we're paying for this facility that we're not fully utilizing. And so now that we're growing, it allows us to more effectively utilize the facility. So it was basically this big bet that we'd be able to create a product that would be interesting and land the distribution and scale in the facility. And it looks like that's <laughs> that bet is coming to fruition, thankfully. Uh, congrats. Are you are you already thinking about what happens when you hit capacity at your current place? It's always something that we think about. Luckily, this facility can take us pretty far, so we're not too concerned about it in the short term over the next few years. But yeah, it's always something that, that you think about and be like, okay, how, uh, how many years do we have in this place and when do we need to either find a new facility or make some improvements where we're significantly increasing our capacity? Yeah, it makes sense. Alec, we're going to close up with one of my favorite questions that I'm starting to ask on every episode. And I think I might know this answer because 
Alex is, I believe, named after you, Alec, Alex. But if your company or your brand was a person, who would it be? And you can't say yourself. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. I, I get this question a lot, especially from brand branding agencies or marketing agencies. What celebrity is your brand? And I'm always horrible at answering that question. I'm going to go with my favorite athlete of all time, which is Dwayne Wade. I'm originally from Miami, so I'm a Miami sports fan. But Interesting. I love Dwayne Wade because he was an underdog, not highly recruited, and he's just scrappy all his heart, like how he goes about things. He had that Congress campaign, get down nine, t- knock down nine times, get up 10. Yeah. But, and he's an amazing player. He puts out a great quote unquote product and he's got some swag to him. Yeah, he's scrappy and he works hard and he's an underdog, but but he's got some swagginess to him. And I like to think that we have some swagginess about ourselves as well, despite the hard working manufacturing and everything like that. Like when you see our product, it's a little flashy and and cool. I like it. I thought you were going to go with a running back. And if I had to guess, I was going to, one of my favorite athletes of all time is Bo Jackson. And I was, he's just somebody that ran through people, was faster than people, played two sports. If I had to take a guess of what your answer was going to be, I was thinking something along the Bo Jackson's lines. Well, that's not a bad one. I wouldn't be mad at being Bo Jackson, the Bo Jackson of ice cream. <laughs> yeah, Bo knows Bo, man. I saw him forgiving Dwayne Wade for breaking Kobe's nose in the All-Star game that one year. Who does that during an yeah. All-Star game, man? <laughs> hey, we're competitive. Yeah. Alec, it was great having you on. Really enjoyed your story, and I'm excited for your future with your ice cream company. Awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you.